Well, good morning, Fellowship Church friends and guests. The Lord be with you. Special greetings to those of you gathered for worship this morning in the sanctuary or, and also to those who are out in the family-friendly space of the atrium or the extra safe space we have out there in the gym and also those who might tune in with us from elsewhere in the world via the online uh, live feed. We're glad to gather with you for worship this morning. I invite you to stand with me for our call to worship. Follow along on the screen, if you would, these great words. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. With the startup of a new school season, in all the ups and downs of family life, through all the tumult of the daily news, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord is my keeper. When I stand on a slippery slope, when I go out and when I come in, when the sun beats down and the moon looms large, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is our keeper. The Lord will keep us both now and forevermore. Let's turn Mike's or Nate's mic off. <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> All right, we're going to do a mulligan. Let's start over with <laughs> Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider Sings my soul, my Savior. 
loving Father, it is not our faithfulness or our goodness that holds us close to your heart, but yours. We are limited in our understanding, and we find comfort in knowing you are writing a greater story, holding the bigger picture, redeeming and weaving our smaller stories of faith and wrestling into a tapestry of your grace. In our weakness, draw us closer to you. May we hear your voice this morning and every day, and may we follow you ever closer. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to take this next moment as we hear some instrumental music to allow the music to speak to you, to worshipfully enjoy and reflect as our guitar ensemble plus harmonica leads us in worship.
Fellas, that was exquisite, outstanding. <laughs> Thanks be to God. What a wonderful way to lead us in worship this morning. In the spirit of uh, beautiful things, I want to also mention this bouquet of flowers that is right before me, which is there uh, on behalf of the Van Leers and in memory of their dear friend, Charles. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, and together it is our mission to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. I can see all your eyes going right behind me to see if I'm getting it right. So there it is, okay? That's what we do together, and we would love for you to join us in seeking to live that way in this world. One of the ways that we do that uh, is on our Wednesday nights, community nights. They started this just this past Wednesday night where we were here for a feast of a meal and eating uh, both indoors and outdoor space. That'll continue on as long as weather cooperates. And, uh, and then followed by a variety of activities uh, for uh, people of all ages. You are certainly welcome to join us and to invite friends uh, alongside. In that same way, we have connection cards around this sanctuary at our welcome desk in the back. And if you are new and would like to make yourself known, we would love to know you and invite you all the more intentionally to some of these things. So fill out a connection card um, so that we can uh, connect with you. That'd be wonderful. In just a couple weeks, we'll have what's called Discover Fellowship Cafe, which is kind of our new members class. Uh, uh, although you don't have to become a member at the end of it. You can simply get to know folks and learn about the church, but it is also the on-ramp to membership here at Fellowship. That will be on a Wednesday night in the midst of our community nights starting September 29 and then running for three weeks in a row. You can sign up for that on our website online. If you simply go to the events page, there will be a way to get your name kind of in the hopper for that, and we'd love to have you join us uh, at the Fellowship here of Fellowship Church. Another thing we're looking forward to is World Communion Sunday happens early in October. October 3, I believe, is the day, and we're inviting you as a congregation to engage that kind of global celebration with your own participation. Uh, and so we're asking you to submit a photo of your connection to somewhere in the world. And uh, so I have an example of my own here. This is the Dealman family on the steps of a bank in Albania as we're taking home our son. And uh, so Albania will always have a deep place in our heart. And so that's our submission for this global thing. And you're invited to do the same in whatever place of the world, near or far, you have a connection, a real connection. Submit the photo of you and name that place and we'll create a way to celebrate Uh, that together. Submit those things online, and you have a week to do so, so we can build uh, the display out in the back. We also have the opportunity to celebrate and honor someone who has been in our midst and done great things. I don't know where she went. She moved. Different seat. Okay, come on up. Betty McClarty, and then also Jess and Mary Moore, would you please come forward? We want to celebrate Betty uh, for her years of good service and leadership here at Fellowship Church, and we're going to do so. Mary Moore is a representative of our HR team here at Fellowship, but she's also been a long-standing member of this place and would like to share a little bit. So thank you, Mary. I'm Mary Moore, and on behalf of the Human Resource Committee, good morning. morning. We're a committee that strives to support and resource our staff here at Fellowship, but this morning we want to honor Betty McClarty. Or for those of us who have known her for a very long time, she was formerly known as Betty Driveout. That was before Big Mike um, swept her off her feet and captured her heart. Um, Betty's been actively involved and engaged in the music ministry of fellowship for a very long time. I don't want to specify dates, and I'll try and get it right this time. But she and I sang together in fellowship's choir shortly after high school. So you can figure out the dates, but I'll tell you, it does predate JB's arrival here. So um, anyway, since that time, Betty's served the Lord faithfully and with commitment by using her musical gifts to sing, direct various children and adult choirs, and advocated for new forms of worship music. Most notably, she was instrumental 
I intended that pun, <laughs> instrumental in bringing the bells to fellowship. For the last 18 years or so, she's been committed to organizing, supporting, and directing the bell choir here. Her love for Christ in this congregation remains steadfast and faithful. Ross, in case you're counting, that's four times I've used the word and to describe her positive traits. Bonus points. Yeah. Betty has offered her resignation from the position of Bell Choir Director so she can retire and spend more time sharing her musical gifts and less time on administrative tasks. She hopes to continue to bless fellowship in our greater community by making joyful noises to our Lord and Savior. Betty, we want to thank you for the blessings you have bestowed on this congregation over many, many years, and specifically for leading the bell choir. We wish you only peace, love, and music. To help fuel your enjoyment of music in your retirement, the congregation wishes to present you with a gift certificate that will allow you, and Mike, if you choose to invite him, to hear the Grand Rapids Symphony. We know music is both a blessing to you and from you. Thank you, my friend, for all you've done to bless us with bell music. And please know that we'll pray to God to bless you and your family in this new phase of life. Thank you, Mary. And Mary and I did sing together in choir, and um, she was really um, helpful, instrumental in me um, meeting my husband. We, um, he did see me singing in the choir. There must have been like an angelic hail, halo over my head. I don't know. And the, <laughs> yeah, could have been Mary. Yeah. So we. Um, but Mary and I um, went to his house to invite him on a singles road rally trip. And that was our first, the first time that I really got to see him. But anyway, um, sorry about that side note. I, I would like to say that my prayer has been throughout my ministry here has been Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Enter into his presence with singing and ringing. And playing. So there's a different version of that. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have been grateful for the fellowship family who has um, helped me through and guided me as a college student with my um, first children's choir here. And as we entered into bell ministry, and um, I did every age of children's choir, including high school choir. Some of you of there know that, and um, and we have a lot of different changes of faces here throughout the years. I have appreciated the support of parents um, having their students at rehearsals, their children at rehearsals, and then, of course, in the past 20 or so years with doing the bell choir, even Jeff and Lori Montman were in our bell choir for a while, and um, I am just so grateful for the commitment, the weekly dedication that that takes and the Sundays where they have to be here, I mean, I mean if they're, they're not here, their part isn't played. And um, I didn't see Bob at the first service. I think he might be out there now, but, um, and I hope he doesn't mind. But I remember when I got a call at 6.30 one Sunday morning when bells were playing, and it was Betsy, Betsy Bruin, saying, Bob isn't going to be there today. And I went, oh, no. And she just said, He's having a heart attack. And I'm going, oh, no, why are you bothering to call me? But that's what it means. And I think Eddie Garcia stepped in for that one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there, we just work together. The bell choir has been fabulous to work with, so fun. So I thank them for being that community within this church community, one where we worship together, one where we prayed together, we played together, enjoyed one another, encouraged one another. And um, just a side note, I'm going to say this. I forgot the first one, but we had five full-time music ministers under my time, plus one part-time one, and double that amount of pastors during the time that I started. Um, So it's it's been a phenomenal run, and I appreciate your support. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave.
And I want to add to the appreciation and specifically say, um, working with Betty for the last three years, it's um, been evident her love for what she does. And it really translated and rubbed off on the bell choir members when you would enter into a rehearsal with them and just see there would be laughter, joy, lots of fun, um, desire to do well. And that's, that's because of Betty's leadership for sure. And so very grateful for that community. Um, I do want to let you know, fellowship, that we do have uh, Christy Garcia has stepped up to direct the bell choir um, to fill that spot. So uh, we're very grateful for Christy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she's been playing with the bell choir for a while, so they know her well. And uh, yeah, so we're excited about this next season of ministry and want to just put a little plug in. If you read music or you want to learn how to read music, <laughs> if you're a teen or an adult who wants to come to Tuesday night practices, let Christy know. Her email is in the ministry guide. Um, they are looking for some extra ringers to fill some spots, and I'm sure it will be a good time um, to lead others in worship. Uh, we also want to just say that we have a reception afterwards for Betty. There's cake out there, an opportunity to write some notes of appreciation, and uh, just to kind of send her off well, even though she's going to continue to play in the bell choir. So, um, yeah, we're really grateful for you. Thank you, Betty. I suspect some of you have already had cake, but you can have it again. No one will notice the second time around, okay? As we continue in worship this morning, we have an opportunity. We'll be doing some uh, uh, videos, I almost call them movies, uh, videos highlighting you, people from within our midst. In this Anne series, we want to illustrate God's story and my story and your story and the story, and all of these being woven together in a beautiful way. And so we have a family that uh, I hope will be familiar to you that we'd like to uh, introduce you to via video, and we give special thanks to Bryce Vanderstelt for putting this video together. Take a look. My name is Bud Belcher. And my name is Jean Belcher. And I'm Bud Belcher. And we've been at Fellowship Church since uh, 2007. I think we came there not long after uh, Pastor Brian did. And we moved to Holland in 2002. We have been worshiping from home. We, uh, like a lot of other people, there we have some health concerns that uh, are keeping us from coming back uh, to indoor worship. We've really been impressed with uh, what a great job you folks have done. Uh, it's been very professional, and uh, we've enjoyed it. We don't miss a sermon. I really love the, all the music. I just don't. I love it that um, we can hear the whole service and hear all the music and everything. I'm really glad that we that we have uh, combined the worship styles and uh, having the blended service in one service and the idea of, of different, all the different people being gathered instead of us being separated into groups or ages. There's a blend of contemporary with the standards and uh, I really enjoy both, uh, but I'm more into the contemporary. It speaks more to me. And so it's just, just good to, to uh, be able to hear that all, all uh, in the morning. And I agree with Jeannie that uh, the music is really what puts you in the frame of mind to receive what God's going to tell you. And so uh, it's, it's important, music is. That when I was reading the, uh, uh, the bell and uh, Pastor Ross's article on using and, and so that triggered in my mind an old hymn called Trust and Obey, which I don't know if it's in our hymnal or not, but uh, it was a favorite hymn of a pastor in Lansing that meant a lot to us. And so that's, so when I read that article in the bell, that's what, what it triggered for me was that hymn. Brent has a favorite hymn too, Brent. Why don't you um, tell him about your favorite? Um, I always love tune your eyes upon Jesus because that really speaks to me. Uh, another time that that spoke to me was when we were hearing Pastor Laza's, Laza's sermon about um, P 
Peter um, walking on the water, when he um, when he fo focused on Jesus, he he did okay. But when he took his eyes off Jesus, he got really scared and he sank. And that's the thing with us. We're kind of like Peter in a sense. If we focus on Jesus, we're we're okay. And he holds us up, and we feel all peaceful and everything. And things are really clear to us. But if we take our eyes off Jesus, we sink, so to speak, like Peter, and things are unclear, and we don't have that peace and joy, and, and we can get scared, too. So that song really speaks to me. And the, and the part of that song, when it says, the things of the world will go, go strangely dim. If you're scared about something you can just turn to Jesus and, and whatever you gotta do that day that you don't want to do it, it grows dim beside of Jesus turn your eyes upon Jesus our kids who are ages three through eighth grade to head on out for Sunday school and you can meet um, your teachers in the atrium. Let's pray together. It is our heart's desire, O oh God, to turn our eyes on Jesus to hear afresh your word for us this morning. And so we pray and ask that your spirit might be with us this morning as we fix our eyes on your word and consider how we might live in such a way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We continue our series, as has been alluded to, uh, a fall series uh, to, that we've entitled And. And I, I think if I got the pronunciation right, according to Pastor Ross, in case he missed this last week, it's supposed to be And. Do you need the foot slide with that too? The And little foot slide. And in the church is a kind of counterpoint to the cultural or. You know, for example, Michigan State is a good football team, 
or Michigan State is a bad football team. At Fellowship Church, we say Michigan State can play like a good football team, like they did yesterday, and they can play like a bad football team, like we hope they do in a couple weeks. Just kidding. (laughs) Another example might be Ross is a really good driver, and Ross is good at pickleball. You didn't think I was going to use an or there, did you? The culture wants to make us an or people, right or left, good or bad, strong or weak, full of faith or full of fear. But never more than now do we need to be and people. Last week we considered the great and of Genesis chapter 1, God is both big and God is close. This morning we jump 21 chapters exactly to Genesis chapter 22 And I'd like to contend that this passage is both famous and infamous. If you're like me, sometimes you have a tendency to use those words synonymously because it's just a little prefix, you know, like valuable and invaluable mean basically the same thing, or loved and beloved mean, you know, similar things. But actually, valuable and invaluable mean very different, or not valuable and invaluable, famous and infamous mean very different things. It's not quite the opposite. It's more that famous is your well-known, acclaimed, but infamous is your well-known and acclaimed for the wrong reasons. An example might help. Uh, Famous people, you can think of your own, but Michael Jordan is a famous basketball player. Meryl Streep is a famous actress. Or, you know, lately, a famous TV show is Ted Lasso. Come on, who's got some Ted Lasso likes? Yeah, what's up? If you haven't uh, found out that famous TV show, you should check it out, Apple TV. No, anyway, uh, infamous. Infamous, though, means something very different. Uh, Infamous, you could say Adolf Hitler is an infamous world leader. COVID is an infamous virus. Jess is a famous worship leader. Just kidding, Jess. Oftentimes, though, famous and infamous can kind of get blended up and mixed in together. You know, some people can be both. Bill Cosby was once a famous comedian, Britney Spears was once a famous musical artist. O.J. Simpson was once a famous football player. And then they became infamous for other reasons. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that we would say are famous. Famous passages, well known, that we love to acclaim. And this morning, Genesis chapter 22 would fit in that category. And I would like to argue it's an infamous story as well. I think you'll see why soon. If you are willing and would like to, you could grab the Bibles that are in the the, uh, chairs, uh, and we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 22. It's on page 15 if you are following along. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac 
and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. What a story of obedience. I mean, if there's anything that makes this passage famous, it's Abraham's obedience to God's radical call to sacrifice his son, his only son. Abraham reveals the truth that there is nothing, nothing in all the world more important than following God, not even his son. How did he nurture such a faithful obedience? One could argue it came from years of following God. Abraham, Father Abraham, the one God called in Genesis chapter 12 to go, to leave his people, to leave his community, to leave his very family and go to the place that God would reveal to him. So what did he do? He packed up all his belongings, took his nephew Lot and his wife Sarah, and at the ripe old age of 75, they went. And God proved faithful, and God led the way. Abraham, Father Abraham, the one who was promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, who, after a little mishap, you might say, with his maidservant Hagar and his new son Ishmael, and his little disobedience, God proved that he was faithful in providing him a son. At the ripe old age of 100, he and Sarah had their firstborn son, Isaac. These and numerous other conversations between God and Abraham recorded in Genesis chapter 12 through 22 proved to Abraham that God was faithful. God could do the impossible. God was worth following and God was worth obeying. Abraham had faith in God based on his past experiences and Abraham feared God according to verse 12. Enough to consider doing the impossible. It was Abraham's faith and fear that led to his obedience. And we see it in the story we just read from this morning. We see this in his words to both his servants, the, the boys that he took along, and his, his boy, his son. God called him in the night, we think, because it was the next morning that he got up early and chopped some wood and packed all the things. And together they made a three days journey. Not much is said about that three day journey. We're wonder, left wondering who, what was going on, what were people thinking. We don't really know for sure. But they made the journey until they could see the mountain that God had revealed. And, and then they left the donkey and the maidservants. And they put the wood from the donkey on Isaac's back. And before they could leave, Abraham made this declaration to his servants Stay here. My son and I, we will go up and worship, and we will return. Abraham believed God would provide. But on the way up, Isaac begins to wonder, what is going on here? I mean, child sacrifice, unfortunately, was a practice done by the foreign foreigners, the foreign go- and asked of by the foreign gods. And maybe Isaac was beginning to wonder, hey, what is this? I don't want to think about that, but he made explicit what was going on in his head and what was probably going on in his head the whole three days when he says, Dad, uh, we have, I got the wood, you got the fire and the knife, but we're missing the lamb. Where's the lamb? A.K.A., what's going on, Dad? I don't quite understand. But what did Abraham say? He said, God will provide. God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. We see in Isaac's words to both his servants and to his very son 
that Abraham had faith in God, that Abraham feared God, that God would provide. That's what led to his obedience. Some time ago, my family took a trip uh, out east to visit with my in-laws. We are all gathering in New England, and on our way there, uh, we organized it in such a way that we could stop at Niagara Falls. I've been longing to go to Niagara Falls since I was a little kid. It's on my bucket list, and so we uh, stopped at a hotel, and after, uh, you know, um, driving for a long time, we're like, let's just walk to Niagara Falls. And so uh, we walked right along downstream the Niagara River, and as we got closer and closer to the falls, you could hear it, and my anticipation was growing. I couldn't wait to see it. And I got there, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is a lot of water, and this is super scary. I mean, I was a Holland kid. I grew up. I know that we have to respect the water. It's powerful, and it can do bad things, but standing there feet away from millions of gallons or however many of water, I was personally a little freaked out, and so I'm gripping my kids. You can imagine my kind of shock and awe when I realized that there's people that actually tightrope across Lake uh, the Niagara Falls tightrope. I got a picture. 2012, this dude tightroped over Niagara Falls. Come on! Do you know how dangerous that is? I mean, obviously it's always dangerous, daredevils, you know, they're kind of a little cuckoo. But I found out that this isn't just a 2012 thing. This has been happening for a long time. Check out this guy. He did it with an old school washing machine on his back, took some water from Niagara Falls on the tightrope, and washed his clothes on a tightrope. Legend has it, though, that these two guys kind of pale in comparison to the great tightrope walker who started on the American side and to the cheer of the crowd. They got him going a little bit. They're like, you can do it. Go, go, go. And so he tightroped over to Canada and Canadians are like, yeah, you can do it. Way to go. You did it, man. He's like, I didn't just do it. I'm going to do it again. And so he tightropes all the way back to the American side. Yeah, you did it. Way to go. Back there and back. You're amazing tightroper. Well, being the entertainers that those daredevils are, he kind of egged him on a little bit. He's like, you think that was good, huh? You think I could do it again? Do it, do it, the crowd says. Well, I don't know. I've done it twice. I'm getting a little tired. Do you really believe that I can do it? Go there and back. We believe, we believe. Do you have faith that I can? We have faith you can do it. Well, if you have so much belief and faith, I'll do it, but I need one volunteer to get on my back while I go across. Crickets. Legend has it. uh, That's a legend, but there actually was a dude that did it with a guy on his back. That was his trainer. After training him, he got on his back. Come on, crazy stuff. Point being, Abraham seems to be kind of like that guy willing to jump on God's back no matter how scary, no matter how deadly, to put his faith into practice, to believe and act in obedience. This is a story, a famous story, you might say, of radical obedience. And, and to simplify this story strictly to Abraham's obedience, rejects the challenging implications of this story. This is not just a famous story of obedience. This is also an infamous story worth struggling with. If you find yourself today disturbed by what Abraham has done, has, did as an act of faithful obedience, you're not alone. Rabbis have wrestled with this. Pastors wrestle with this. Any reader of this text, especially in the first time, will likely wrestle with this. And if it's not you this morning, and you might be, oh, I I get it. Can you imagine how a non-Christian might hear this story? What about a skeptic or a doubter? What about someone who's been hurt by the church? What would they say about a God who calls a person to sacrifice, to kill, to murder his own son? Is that really the model of obedience you want to lift up? 
This morning, I want to invite us into the struggle of this story and the numerous questions it raises. Chief among them, questions about Abraham and about God. Abraham's story is worth struggling with as a model of faithfulness and morality. Yes, God makes promises to Abraham, and Abraham makes promises back to God, but his life has not always reflected that. Genesis chapter 12, that same chapter when God said go, is also kind of a horrific story as well, because as they are going and entering into that foreign land, Abraham, with his wife Sarah in tow, realizes that his wife is a beautiful wife. And that the king might have something to say about that and might not appreciate the fact that he's married to her. So what does Abraham do? Hey, Sarah, why don't you pretend like you're my sister? And then when the king asks us who you are, he'll spare us because you're not married to me. So what happens? The king says, who is this beautiful woman? And Abraham is like, it's my sister, Sarah. Have her. And the king took her to be his wife. Not once, but twice Abraham does this. Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 20. He goes into another land. God calls him to another place. And Abraham is like, hey, hon, you're my sister, remember? And they get to the king, and the king is like, who is this beautiful woman? And he says, take her. She's my sister, This is not the model of faithfulness and obedience we want to follow, is it? A guy that does this to his wife? Thankfully, God spares him, spares Sarah the second time. And not only that, but Genesis chapter 21. Abraham, Sarah, has plenty of things to be upset about. But one of the things that she's really upset about is the fact that he had a child with his maidservant. And so what does Sarah ask of Abraham? Abraham, will you please, I I can't stand looking at them anymore. Just get rid of them. And so Abraham banishes Hagar and Ishmael to the desert, to the place where people don't come back. Thankfully, once again, God proves faithful and does provide for Hagar and Sarah. But it seems to me that Abraham has a strong dose of insecurity He's willing to do whatever he can to save face in the moment, to make himself look good at the expense of his family, at the expense of his wife, at the expense of his maidservant, at the expense of his maidservant's son that is also his, and now at the expense of his very own son. And not only that, but I have a little beef with Abraham because Abraham also barters with God. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom is seen as a sinful city, a city that uh, needs to be reckoned with. And God is considering, what is he going to do to this city? And what does Abraham do? God, please, 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 if, if I find 50 righteous people in that city... Amongst so many sinners, will you just spare the city? If, you find, if, I, if I can find 50 righteous people, I will relent, God says. I, I hate to ask this, Abraham says, but God, if there's five less, what if there's 45? Will you still spare the city on behalf of those righteous? You won't kill all the people if I can find 40. You, then you'd have to kill the 45 righteous people. I'll spare them. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? I'll spare them, God says. Which is particularly troubling to me, given the fact that Abraham advocates and and pleads with God for the lives of these sinful foreigners in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's unwilling to do the same for his very own son? Abraham's actions are worth struggling with. Abraham's obedience is worth struggling with. At the risk of being a little trite, I'm going to ask you to think about your life if you are a parent or if you've been a parent or if you've known a toddler before and and think about some of the things that they have done that you struggle with. It's hard for you to understand. You know, like my daughter one time, she uh, loved to color and draw, and so she was coloring and drawing on a piece of paper with a bright blue Sharpie marker and decided to not only color the paper, but also our cream-colored couch in the living room. 
Or, or what about this one girl who, uh, after her parents had r- totally redone the guest bedroom, repainted the walls, made it look great, they had guests coming that weekend, she said, she thought, maybe I can help mom and dad by, by doing a little decoration of myself. And so she wrote in, with a, a Sharpie marker on the wall, a big heart that said, I love you, dad. Maybe she's a little bit more similar to Abraham. You you really appreciate the sentiment, but you're not so sure about the method or the means by which you share that sentiment. But it's not just Abraham's actions that I struggle with, to be honest. I, I struggle with God's. God, the creator that we talked about last week, the giver of life. God, the one who promises new life for Abraham and for all his descendants. God, the one who gives life and is promising new life, is now commanding his son to take away life? What kind of God would do this? God's command and Abraham's willingness to follow are worth struggling with. They're not congruent with the picture and what we know to be true about the life-giving God. And Abraham is not always a picture of faithful obedience. It's worth wrestling with God in this story. This past Wednesday night, uh, we had our first community night, as Ross alluded to, and uh, one of the uh, adult offerings is a a Bible study led by our seminary intern, Reagan, um, uh, on the text or on the passage that we're going to preach on the next uh, Sunday. And so I'm like, I need some notes. I'm going to go to that class and learn from my people. And we went there and we were discussing some of the radical obedience, you might say, of Abraham, and then also naming some of these very struggles. And one person asked the question that maybe some of you are thinking right now, why is this story even in the Bible? I I struggle with that too. That's a really good question. Why is this in the Bible? But maybe... Maybe, maybe that's the point. Maybe this story is full of obedience and struggle as it is, is part of the story, God's story, because it's also part of our story too. Things happen in our life that we don't understand. There's times when we ask God, why are you doing this? What are you calling me to do? There's times when we're asked to be faithful in the midst of the deadliest of circumstances. And we wonder what faith looks like when tragedy hits. We wonder what faith looks like when we have been diagnosed with terminal cancer. We wonder what faith looks like when we lose a friend at too young of an age. We wonder what faith looks like when our child gets caught doing something that we are totally ashamed of. We wonder what faith looks like when dementia begins to rob the very person that we love. To cheapen these experiences to just a lesson in obedience seems way too simplistic. But to struggle, or worse, abandon God in the midst of them also doesn't seem right. We need the story of Isaac and Abraham because it reminds us that holding both obedience and struggle in the face of life's most tragic events is the only faithful path. Ellen Davis, a great Old Testament scholar, uh, was uh, a great help to me in realizing that this week. And her words might be better than mine at this point. The point of this story is not to make people believe in Abraham's God, who is, of course, also Jesus' God and Father. Rather, this harrowing story exists to help people who already believe make sense of their most difficult experiences. When God seems to take back everything that that they have ever received at God's hand. In other words, the point is not to draw people in, but rather to help people who are already in stay in. 
to stay in relationship with the one true God even when their world turns upside down. This story appears front and center in Genesis where no reader of the Bible can miss it because the hard truth is that when the world turns upside down, and it does way too often for the faithful. She goes on to tell the story of Eliza Berkowitz, a Jewish theologian who's primarily, primarily known for being one of the leading thinkers on the events of the Holocaust. He reflected on the faithfulness of the Jews as the Nazis were breaking down their doors, hunting their family members, torturing, overworking, and even murdering them in concentration camps. And yet the Jewish people kept faith. They kept having children. They kept circumcising their boys. They kept organizing their daily lives around prayers and the weekly services, even in the hell of their existence. What gave them such courage? Why did they do it? Eliza says, Genesis chapter 22, the struggle and the obedience of Abraham. Eliza, this great theologian, imagines what Abraham was thinking as he took that three-day journey up to Moriah. And he wonders aloud if this might have been Abraham's prayer as he struggled with God. In this situation... I don't understand you, O God. Your behavior violates our covenant. Still, I trust you. Because it is you, because it is you and me, because it is us. Almighty God, what you are asking of me is terrible. But I have known you, my God. You have loved me and I love you. My God, you are breaking your word to me. Yet, I will trust you. I will trust you. I will trust you. Obedient trust and justifiable struggle. Our lives are a complex story and they can't be reduced to just one or the other. Mysteriously, by faith, we hold obedient, obedience and struggle on the faithful way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Fellowship, in our response this morning, I invite you to stand and to sing this next song with us with whatever amount of faith you have in this moment.
struggle uh, with God. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.